All right, thank you, Brother Anson. Just want to say it's not you. It's not you, Anson. <laughs> Don't be condemned. All right, praise God. Um, thank you guys so much for coming. And I just wanted to say, uh, reiterate what Anson said, but we actually have these postcards for the meet and greet. So this is something we do every year. Um, so if you've been here before, you know, we want you to take this and not just hold on to it, but give it to a friend and invite them out so that we can meet and greet them as well. So you guys should all have this in your bulletin. Uh, but please join us. It's going to be a great time. All right, uh, open up your Bibles to Joel 1, 1 through 12, and we will get into the Word of God. Joel 1, 1 through 12. Looking forward to going through this new book together. But Joel 1, 1 through 12, and if, you've, uh, if you're joining us here in person, it'll be up on the screen behind me. If you're joining us online, it'll be on your screen at home. All right. Can we actually close that door, somebody? I can preach through toilets flushing, but I don't know. It's a little distracting. <laughs> All right, this is the word of God. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust is eaten. With the swarming locust left, the hopping locust is eaten. And with the hopping locust left, the destroying locust is eaten. Awaken, you drunkards, and weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine. For it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up. The oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up. The fig tree languishes. Pomegranate, palm, and apple. All the trees of the field are dried up. And gladness dries up from the children of man. Let's pray. Father, we give you all the glory and we thank you, Father, for this beautiful Sunday morning. And Father God, we pray and ask that you will continue to, Father God, reveal yourself to us. Thank you for that uh, beautiful time of worship, revealing your presence to us through song. I pray that you will now reveal yourself to us through word, through your word. And I pray that you will, Father God, open our minds and our hearts Father God, challenge us. Father, if need be, rebuke us and build us up and pour out grace. Father, we want to be with you today. We thank you, Father, for everyone who's joined us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, well, last week we began a brand new series in the book of Joel. And Joel was an Old Testament prophet who rose up and spoke the word of God when? When there was a great crisis that broke open in ancient Israel. So I kind of went through this at length last week. I won't cover all of it again. But basically, a great swarm of locusts came out of nowhere and devoured enormous amounts of crops and vegetation. And so in a very short amount of time, Israel's entire food supply was almost gone, and they were facing famine. So this was a great crisis. And last week, I mentioned some incredible facts about locusts. Again, I won't go into all that again. 
But this is not far-fetched. Okay, this is not the Bible exaggerating again. But even in modern times, people have seen locusts cause great devastation to entire food supplies of entire nations. But I mentioned last time how even in 2020, in Kenya, large swarms of locusts were spotted. And they were billions of locusts moving from Kenya to Uganda to other parts of Africa, causing great devastation. So this is huge. And Israel was facing a real crisis. And we're also facing real crises in the world. It's not an amen, but it's just a fact. But we just came out of a worldwide pandemic, right? And we're still dealing with the large-scale effects of that. It's going to be around for a while. There are also new crises gathering on the horizon, kind of like storm clouds gathering. But there's an, uh, an economic crisis that's on the horizon. There's energy and food crisis that people are talking about. There's war, rumors of war. And so there's all kinds of things that are happening right now. And then there are even life-defining crises in our own lives, right? There are things that are happening in our personal lives that have happened or are about to happen. So this is just fact. This is the reality of life. And so in light of all of that, here's an important question that we need to ask. This is the question that I opened up the entire series with. But how should we understand and respond to crises in our lives and in our world? The moment crisis hits your life, how are you going to respond? How are you going to understand what's happening? What do you do during those times? Well, during Israel's crisis, Joel rose up and then he gave an answer, a very important answer. And he did it by giving the word of God. And what Joel said was surprising. So it's not what people thought, like, oh, God is with you and he loves you. Yeah, that was part of the message, but it was very different. It was much more than that. His answer was very surprising. But this is what he said. He said, here's a great crisis. Do you see what is happening all around you? This is the day of the Lord. He said in Joel 2 verse 1, Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, and it is now here. It is near, it is here. So that was a very surprising answer, totally unexpected. Because for the Israelites, the day of the Lord was not a day of judgment. Yes, it's a day of judgment for Gentiles, non-believers, pagans. But for us, we're the people of God. So for them, the day of the Lord was supposed to be a day of great salvation and great blessing. And yet, Joel came and said, no. If you are living like everyone else, if you're living just like the nations around you, then the day of the Lord will be a day of judgment. And with the coming of this crisis, that day is here. See, it was very surprising. It was actually a shocking message. And then he didn't stop there. But then he said, this day of the Lord that you see in front of you is actually a reminder. It is a sign. See, when I used to drive from L.A. all the way to NorCal, my family lived up there. When I was in college, I was down here. And I remember driving on the 5 freeway, and you become kind of like a zombie because there were no signs, nothing. And so you're kind of zoning out, going up on the fry. And then all of a sudden, oh, my gosh, you wake up. Why? Because you see a sign. And you're like, oh, I'm only 300 miles away from home, right? Or I'm only 200 miles. Now I'm 100 miles. But you wake up. Why? Because there's a sign. And so this is what Joel is saying. There is a sign, and this crisis is it. Is this the day of the Lord? Yes, it is. God has come to us in judgment. But this is also a sign pointing to a greater day that is coming, the final day of the Lord. 
And Joel said, if you don't take this opportunity now during this crisis, if you don't understand what's going on, if you don't care what's going on, and you don't take this opportunity to repent and return to God, he said, then that final day of the Lord will also come upon you suddenly and be a day of great judgment, even greater judgment than now. This was Joel's message. But then he doesn't end there. And in the second half of the book, he went on to say, but if you repent, if you return to God, if you see what is happening in your life and around the world, and you're not just like, uh, but you notice what is happening. There is great crisis. And you return to God. This is a sign pointing also to a greater day of judgment. You return to God. Then God will pour out his blessings upon you. Unimaginable. This is Joel's message. Not only here and now, but on that day as well, God will pour out his blessings. He mentions specifically he will defeat your enemies. He will restore all the years that the locusts have eaten. And he will, most of all, pour out his spirit upon you. That was the greatest blessing of all. So all these things will happen if you will just return back to God, if you notice what is happening and you run to God. And so this was Joel's shocking message. So let me ask again. How will you respond when crisis breaks open in your life and in the world? How are you going to understand it? What are you going to do? Well, according to Joel, this is what we need to understand, everything that I just said. This was the word of the Lord. So to summarize again, there is a life-defining crisis headed our way. It is called the day of the Lord. It is a day that God has brought. And this is how we need to respond But when you see the day of the Lord coming, and it is now here, I'm talking about just a crisis that defines your life, then we need to remember that this present day of the Lord is just a sign pointing to that greater day. We should immediately think that. If you are shaped by the word of God, if you are really deep in the word of God and you understand it, then you should immediately think that. Okay, this is pointing to that day when Jesus comes back. I'm reminded of that. And because you're reminded of that, then you're going to immediately, in this day of the Lord, in this crisis, repent and turn to God. Whatever needs to be repented of, whatever is going on in your life that is not of God, you turn back to God, you come to him, you seek him. And if you do that, God has promised, all kinds of blessings will be poured out on your life. And the greatest blessing of all is he will pour his presence out on your life. I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. So is that clear? So in a nutshell, this is Joel's message And please come back because there's a lot more to unpack. You're like, okay, I don't have to come back. I know the book of Joel. No, come back. But this is his message in a nutshell, and it is all God's grace. See, during a time of crisis, when God speaks, and he does, and he has, in the book of Joel, elsewhere, many times. But when God speaks, that is God's grace on your life, on my my life. This is why he's giving us the word of God. It's his grace. So today, as we go into the actual content now, I want to ask another question. But do you trust God in times of great crisis? Do you trust him? Do you trust God? Even knowing that God brought this or allowed it into your life. And there's really no meaningful difference between the two. I know sometimes people try to soften it. Oh, he allowed it. He didn't cause it. Well, if God is almighty and he knows all things, he knows the future, He could have stopped it, but he allowed it. I mean, is that very different from causing it? It's almost the same thing. But whether he caused it or allowed it, he knew he could have stopped it, but it came anyway. So even knowing that, that this crisis is here now because God allowed it or caused it, do you still trust him? 
Do you trust him? So that's the question. And hopefully as we work through the book of Joel, this answer is going to become clear to you. Do you trust him? Now, even asking this question up front right now, I know it's very hard for modern people to kind of hear this. Maybe you're struggling right now. You're like, "Ah, I don't know. I don't like this. God causing crisis to break open in my life. I mean, do you know what happened to my family recently? Do you know the person that passed away in my family terribly with cancer? Do you know the injury that happened to a loved one in my life? I mean, you don't even know what happened to my life. And you're right, I don't. But I still stand here today saying, even if God caused those things, and he allowed those things, which we know is true, he allowed it at a minimum, can you still trust him? This is hard for modern people to wrap their heads around, to accept. And in fact, in ancient times, people had a much easier time accepting this, truth and trusting God. And it's not because ancient people were more superstitious, and we're not. In modern days, we're scientific. So we have a harder time. No, that's not why ancient people had an easier time and modern people have a harder time accepting this. That's not the reason. But the real reason why is because ancient people were more humble about their limitations. And modern people are more confident, and I would say for some, even arrogant in their ability to know things that we simply cannot know. Okay, that's the real reason. It's not because ancient people were superstitious so they trust God. We're scientific now, so we don't really trust God especially a God who brings crisis? No, that's not the reason. We simply believe we know things that we cannot know. So what do I mean? Well, for example, many people use the problem of evil as their reason why they don't believe in God. And I've talked to a lot of people. I used to go out on the campus doing a lot of evangelism, and I met a good number of people. They said, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to believe in your God because look at all the evil around. I can't believe in that God. So people use that as an argument against God. And this argument basically goes like this. If the Bible is true and God is all-powerful and he is all-loving, he is all-good, then this all-powerful, all-loving God would prevent evil from happening, right? That's just obvious. If you can stop evil and you have the desire to stop it because you're loving and you're also all-powerful, then you would do it. If I saw my child running out into the middle of the street, I wouldn't be like, oh, I wonder what's going to happen. Maybe he'll learn a lesson. I will run there and grab my child and prevent him from being hit by a car. So this seems obvious to everyone. And yet, we look around the world and evil exists. Lots of it. All throughout the world. For example, like locusts bringing famine. And we're not talking just about bugs here eating a lot of crops. We're talking about if famine hits, then children are starving. Children will die. We're talking about terrible diseases where people are literally eaten from the inside out and they die a terrible death. We're talking about things like rape. We're talking about things like molestation. We're talking about abuse, all kinds of stuff. We're talking about earthquakes that collapse buildings and kill people. There is lots of evil in this world. And therefore, because we see all of this, the God of the Bible cannot exist. I can't believe in this God. He is either all-powerful but not loving, so he's not a good God, Or he is all-loving, but he is not powerful, so he is a very weak and impotent God. Either way, I cannot believe that the God of the Bible exists. Because the Bible says, no, God is both all-powerful and all-loving. So I do not believe in this God. I cannot trust in this God, even if he does exist. And so this is the argument people will use to reject the God of the Bible. They will either deny he exists, or at a minimum, if they say, okay, maybe he exists, I don't trust him, though. I will not give my life to him or trust him. So who would trust a God who isn't good? Or who would trust a God who is weak? 
and can't do good. I can't trust a God like that. And so I've heard this many times, and I admit, it's very compelling. It's actually a compelling argument. I go, yeah, you kind of have a point there, sort of, <laughs> on the surface. And so this argument has been very uh, compelling for a long time. It's been circulated by a lot of people. Even the Bible acknowledges this problem. Do you know that? Have you read the book of Job? I know some people in our church have been reading through that recently. But the book of Job acknowledges this problem. And even Jesus himself acknowledged it. One time the disciples ran to him saying, teacher, teacher, this tower fell and killed a bunch of people. Was it because of their sin? And Jesus gave a very interesting answer. It was like, no, it wasn't because of sin. But if you don't repent, it might happen to you too. So the Bible wrestles with this problem as well. But it's not until modern times that the problem of evil became a real argument against God. I will see that again. It's not until modern times that the problem of evil became an actual argument against God. And here's why. Again, it's because people in ancient times knew about the problem. Again, even the Bible talks about it. But for the most part, they continued to believe in God. They kept trusting in God. They go, yeah, I mean, this is a problem. I don't understand it, but I will trust God. But in modern times, people have changed. They use this problem of evil to reject God altogether. And again, please, it is not because ancient people are superstitious and we're scientific. That is not the reason why. But here's the real reason. The real reason modern people reject God based on the problem of evil is because they are making an assumption that ancient people did not make. Okay, what am I talking about? Modern people, based on their vast knowledge and powers of reasoning, and I'm being a little sarcastic there, but based on all this knowledge we have now, we have Google, we have internet, we have science, they assume because they don't see any good reasons why an all-powerful and all-loving God would allow evil, they conclude, please pay attention, they, there are no good reasons. Does that make sense? They assume people today, maybe some of us here, we assume because we don't see any good reasons why an all-powerful and all-loving God would allow evil, we conclude there are no good reasons. There can't be. So modern people think to themselves, I can't think of one reason why an all-powerful, all-loving God would allow evil in the world, so there must be no reason. Okay, there must be no reason. And therefore, I don't believe this God exists. And that is a very bold, and I would even add arrogant statement. Okay, that's very arrogant. Okay, that is an assumption that ancient people, for the most part, did not make. You know, Alvin Plantinga, he's a philosophy professor at Notre Dame. He's actually a Christian as well. But he was one of the first people to point this out, this assumption, way back in the 70s, I think. But he pointed this assumption out that modern people make. But he, along with other people since that time, they have said to the skeptic, if your whole argument is based on a God who is supposed to be powerful enough and good enough to stop evil in the world, the whole argument that people are making is based on that, right? If God is good enough and, and powerful enough, why doesn't he stop all this? If your whole argument is based on a God like that, then why can't this God also allow evil in the world for reasons that you wouldn't know? Okay, why would you assume that you know all the reasons and they don't, they're not good reasons? Okay, why wouldn't you also trust that God, this all-loving, all-powerful God, might have reasons for doing this that you don't know? And that's a great question. They're actually right. They're right. 
So could there be good reasons why an all-powerful, all-loving God would allow evil in the world? See, if we don't get over this, we're not going to even accept the message of Joel. Could there be reasons why an all-powerful, all-loving God would bring cancer into our lives, bring crises into the world that directly affect us, God bringing COVID into the world or at a minimum allowing it, I don't see any difference. Again, he could have stopped it, he didn't. It swept through the world, millions died. Is there any reason that we could imagine why God would do that? Could there be good reasons even if we don't see those reasons? Could there be a good reason why a nurse is holding a toddler down while a doctor sticks a large needle into his leg? Could there be a good reason for that, even if the toddler cannot for the life of him know what that reason is? Could there be a good reason for that? Of course, now as adults, we know, yeah, there are good reasons why two adults might hold down a toddler and stick that toddler with a large needle. Well, when we bring this now into our lives, the Bible is very clear. The answer to all those questions is yes, yes. There are good reasons why God allows evil in the world and at times even brings it into our lives and into the world. And because he's God, he doesn't have to tell us why. This is merely his reasons. But sometimes he will let us know some clues, right? So let me ask again, in a time of crisis, do you trust God? Even if you don't see the reasons for the crises in your life and in the world, do you still trust God? Well, only you can answer that, right? I can't answer it for you. Only you can answer that in your heart. But fortunately, you're not left to yourself because we have the word of God. We have the book of Joel. So even though the book of Joel does not tell us fully why God brought these locusts, and yes, God had great promises, but history shows us that those promises didn't come right away. God didn't restore all the years that the locusts had eaten right away. I mean, it took many, many years before all that got brought back. God didn't deliver them from their enemies right away. In that time, children could have starved and even died. So could there have been reasons? Well, again, Joel doesn't tell us exactly why. But this is what Joel tells us. He tells us what God was doing during that crisis and what God is doing in our crises, in our lives. He tells us what God is up to. And so God was using the crisis to expose, to expose all the things that were sinful, all the things that were not right within the Israelites. He used the crisis to make them mourn and then finally to make them return back to him, the source of true life. This was all grace. I know sometimes this this doesn't sound like grace, but this was all driven by God's grace. So what I want to do now is look at the first 12 verses. So we're going to finally, I know that was a super long intro all last Sunday and then half of this Sunday. But we're going to finally now look at these verses. But God was doing things, right? He was doing things. He was working in the midst of this crisis. So the first thing God did was he used the crisis to expose the Israelites. He used the crisis to expose the Israelites. So in the opening to the book of Joel, Joel makes it clear that this great plague of locusts was more than an agricultural disaster. It was way more than that. But we know that this was more than that because Joel used apocalyptic language So, for example, in verse 4, he mentions four different kinds of locusts. I don't want to make too much of this. But some commentators say that the four kinds of locusts could have apocalyptic significance. Why? Because the number four comes up in apocalyptic 
parts of the Bible. So for example, in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, he had this big dream about a statue in Daniel chapter 2. Totally different story, different book. But Nebuchadnezzar had this dream of a statue and it had four different parts to it. The number four also comes up again when John saw the four horsemen in Revelation 6. This is talking about the last days when Jesus returns shortly before. But these four horsemen had to do with God's judgment in the last days, the number four again. So maybe, I don't want to make too much of it, but maybe Joel was also referring to that. Okay, not specifically to the four horsemen or the statue, but it had some kind of a significance, the four different kinds of locusts that came and ate up all the crops. So my point is, is that to Joel, this was a big deal. This was more than just a bug problem, an agricultural disaster. This had apocalyptic significance. This is why Joel called it the day of the Lord. And as we already know, that was a sign pointing to a much greater day of the Lord that Joel said, wake up, there's something else coming. You need to think about both and what God is going to do in both. And so this was the revelation Joel got from God. And then based on that revelation, and then here's the first point, he began to call people out. In the first whole section of this book, he's calling different groups of people out And what he's doing is he's describing what is happening, how it's affecting them, and what it's exposing in them. So how is this crisis exposing the different groups of people? Joel is telling them. This is what's happening. So he's calling out different groups of people by name. So he calls out the elderly, the drunkards, the farmers, and the ministers or priests. These are different groups he addresses. And again, he's telling them, This is what's happening. And this is what is happening to you in the midst of this crisis. It's exposing things, right? It's stripping things away and exposing. So in Joel 1, verse 2, he calls out the elderly first. Look at that verse. Hear this, you elders, give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Now there, the word elders, we immediately might think of like maybe church elders, but that's not what it's talking about. It's not talking about spiritual leaders. They could have been, but based on what Joel is saying here, it's probably more likely he's just talking about old people, the elderly. Okay, that's what he's talking about, the elderly. One commentator said you could replace that word with old-timers, okay, old-timers, elderly. So Joel was saying, wake up, right, you elderly. And then what did he say? He said, hear, give ear. In Hebrew, this is a common way to say learn. There's something I want you to learn here. And so right off the bat, this was kind of a rebuke. But Joel was saying to the elderly, there are some things you need to learn. See, you're advanced in age, you've lived many years, and so you trust in the things that you know. You trust in your wisdom. And yes, older people do have wisdom. So there is truth to that. But he's saying, but there is something that you don't know, and so you need to learn still. And so he's saying, elderly people, have you learned what God is saying through this crisis? Have you learned about the day of the Lord that has come upon his people? Do you understand this? So Joel is calling out the elderly. And he's calling out their lack of learning. Probably because they were trusting in their own learning. They've lived life. I know what's going on. I've, I've been around the block. I've seen things. And Joel says, no, but you don't understand this. So have you learned? And so this is quite a rebuke. And even though we would expect the elderly to trust in their own wisdom because they lived a long life, we would expect that, right? And yet, when crisis hits, when the day of the, 
of the Lord comes, Joel says, is not enough. Okay, that will not be enough. So if that's true for the elderly, then how much more is it true for those who are in their 20s and 30s or barely out of their 20s and 30s? And yet there are so many Christians today who walk around thinking, oh yeah, you know what? There's pretty much everything that needs to be known. I, yeah, I've been there. They come to church, they sit here, and they go, I've heard all this before. Right? Same old, same old. And they start tuning out. And so they trust in their limited knowledge that they have in the Bible. They trust in their own theology. I mean, it must be right because I believe it. And what's worse, they trust in their knowledge about life that they just acquired who knows where. They just picked up here and there. And this is Joel's message to all of us. Wake up. That's not going to be enough. Okay, what are you going to know? What are you going to depend on? Okay, what have you learned in this short life that you've lived that you're going to trust in when crisis hits your life? Okay, what will you know what to do when the day of the Lord comes? So Joel calls them out. Okay, you lack knowledge. Do you hear? Do you understand? So this is the first group. Next, Joel calls out the drunkards. Look at verse 5. He says, Wake up, you drunkards, and weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. So who are these people? Okay, the drunkards. Kind of strange. He addresses them next, before the religious leaders, before the king, before anybody. Well, these are people living off the land. And just like drunkards today, these are people who are utterly self-absorbed in their lives. They live for temporary pleasures, and they utterly take the blessings of God for granted. Okay, how many of us take for granted that we live in this free country with material blessing unimaginable to the majority of the world? I mean, I take it for granted all the time. But these are blessings that God has allowed us to enjoy, and the drunkard completely takes it for granted. And so they are living hand to mouth, moment to moment, just for the pleasure in front of them. And Joel says, wake up. And he was doing more than telling them to wake up, literally. But Joel also meant wake up spiritually. So he wasn't going around just kicking drunk people going, wake up. There's a great famine here. But he was saying, wake up spiritually. You spiritual drunkards. Don't you know what God is doing? Don't you see what's happening around you? Or are you so just focused on the thing right in front of you? Okay, my school, my work, my paycheck, okay, buying the next thing I want, okay, I'm upgrading my TV from a 75 to a 90 inch. I'm blown away by the size of TVs nowadays. It's like, might as well just have a movie theater, right? It's like, I'm just focused on the next vacation, right? I'm just focused on the next movie I got to watch, the next meal I'm going to have, the next friends I'm going to, you know, hang out with. And yet Joel says, don't you see what's going on? You are in the middle of a crisis, and Joel says, this crisis has cut off the wine from your mouth. I don't think the English does justice to that, but in the Hebrew, it's a very graphic picture of literally God snatching the bottle away as the drunkard is lifting it to his mouth. God comes and just snatches that away. Because that's what he's saying. God has snatched the bottle from your mouth, and you're still just in a haze. Do you see what's going on? He says, the vineyards are gone. All the grapes that produce your beloved wine. They are gone. And so what is God doing here? He's exposing in a single moment the frivolous life that they're living. And brothers and sisters, I'm being dead serious. But when crisis hits your life, and when crisis hits the world, that's one of the first things we're going to realize. My gosh, what am I doing? You know, many, many years ago, when my brother passed away suddenly, he took his life when I was in college. But in that moment, you know what I woke up to in that split second? What the heck am I doing? What am I doing with my life? 
I remember after going numb and then spending time mourning, that was the first thing that came to me is what am I doing with my life? I mean, I was going to go pre-med. I was going to go do something else, make lots of money, whatever. I don't know what I was going to do. None of it matters suddenly. What am I doing? I'm just worried about, like, what my friends think about me. I mean, who cares? Who cares about any of that? You know, many years ago, Neil Postman wrote a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. But he was a social critic, and he talked about how our downfall won't come so much from big government watching us and controlling our lives, but he believed that our downfall will come from within. He said we will more likely decay from within. He said looking at our culture and our way of life, we are headed towards amusing ourselves to death. That was the title of his book. And so he pointed out the growing presence of television and media and entertainment. And he was talking about this stuff in the 1980s. That book came out in 1985. And already back then, almost 40 years ago, he was already seeing this and concerned about it. And Postman, who I don't think was a Christian, and this was not a Christian book, but he says spiritual devastation is more likely to come from an enemy with a smiling face. In other words, it's the things that entertain us, that we love to do, that we're so wrapped up in day to day. This is where spiritual devastation will more likely come. Again, he said that long ago in the 80s. So imagine... If Postman was still alive, what he would say today? What would he say today? With billions of hours of media streamed every day. (laughs) Again, I'm blown away by that stat. Billions of hours of YouTube streamed per day. Per day. By people around the world. It is insane. And you can have access to it anywhere, anytime. You could be literally on the freeway. Even yesterday, we were driving somewhere. We were going all the way to L.A., and some people in the van were streaming things online on the freeway. It's like, wow, this is so crazy. I would be blown away when I was younger when I saw one TV set inside a minivan with a VHS. (laughs) I'd be like, whoa, those are rich people, right? And now it's like every person has something streaming as we're flying down the freeway. It's just life. Again, nothing wrong with that, but this is just the world we live in. Where are we headed? Well, Joel said, crisis can bring an end to all of that in a single moment. Okay, not the actual things themselves, but our obsession, okay, us being so wrapped up in it. Again, he says, the bottle will be snatched away. Literally, as we're raising it to our mouth, God just says, nope. So God will expose our self-absorbed, wasteful, frivolous lives in a single moment. Okay, this was his call to the drunkards. But that's not all. Next, he called out the ministers. The ministers. These were the priests in Israel, the full-time religious workers. Look at verse 9. Joel said, The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn the ministers of the Lord. So here, Joel, he's actually appalled by this. But in ancient Israel, the priests would actually give daily offerings to God. This was their worship. This is literally how they worship God. So this would be their worship service. Here we sing songs and we listen to a guy talk for 30 minutes, right? But back then, worship actually had a lot of other things. They would offer grain offerings and drink offerings, wine made from the finest grapes. They would even offer things called peace offerings that were a mixture of grain and bread. And of course, they offered animals as well. But a large part of these offerings, their worship, came from the fruit of the land. And in this instance, when Joel said, the locusts have come and eaten everything, what happened? Their worship literally came to a stop. Their worship came to a screeching stop. 
It's almost as if God's judgment had come upon their very worship. It's almost as if God's covenant with them had been canceled. Okay, this is how the Jews would have felt. What? This locust plague came, and you're telling us God brought it, and it brought an end to our worship? It's almost as if God was taking away his covenant. Of course, that wasn't true, but it almost felt that way. And because of that, the priests were mourning, and Joel was horrified. But even in this, God was showing grace. Why? Because he was stripping things away within the religious system and the priests and the ministers and all the religious people, and he was exposing them. He was exposing their sin. He was revealing their trust in their religious activities more than God for their righteousness. And we know this is true because when Jesus got here, this is what he encountered again and again. Jews who constantly told him, we're father, I mean, I'm sorry, we're children of Father Abraham. We are righteous before God. We don't need to listen to you. Why? Because we do all these things. We keep the Sabbath. We tithe. We go to the temple. We offer these grain. So God exposed that. Their trust in their own religiosity more than God for their righteousness. Their desire for the blessings of God more than God himself, all the while while making motions of worshiping God. So literally taking the worship of God itself and using that to worship something else. That's what Joel is pointing out. And God revealed all that. Jesus said it best, honoring God with your lips while your hearts are far away. And so all of this was revealed and God brought it to an end. He said it's going to end now. And so when I read this, you know, I don't like pointing fingers at any church or any group because I know more fingers are pointed back to us, right? You know that saying? When you point a finger, three come back to you. So I don't like doing that. But, but as I read through this earlier this week, I can't help but think about how COVID brought tens of thousands of church services to a sudden stop, right? To suddenly, they all ended. Now, eventually, they started up again online. You know, they started meeting outdoors in parks. But for a little while, they all came to an end. And I can't help but think of all the pastors that I heard during that time who left the ministry shortly afterwards. Some felt genuinely called by God, and I'm not questioning that. But others, I remember hearing, reading, that they left the ministry because, ah, I don't know, this isn't what I signed up for. Okay, I didn't sign up for online ministry. I didn't sign up for churches that are half the size of what they used to be. And they just left. But as I see all of that, as I saw all of that, I can't help but make the connection between that and what Joel is saying. God will bring all of this to an end. Yeah, I see what's going on. I'm ripping the curtain off. I'm exposing. It's coming to an end now. This is the day of the Lord. And I want to emphasize, it's still God's grace Right, even though it's like, oh my gosh, what is going on? We can't even have church. We can't even gather together and celebrate and worship. Even in that, it is still God's grace because he is exposing so that we can return. And then finally, Joel, he called out one more group, the farmers. Okay, the farmers. Look at verse 11 through 12. He said, be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. He's talking about farmers. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple. All the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. So here, Joel is calling out now the final group, the farmers, the workers, who are working diligently and tirelessly. These are people who find deep satisfaction in their work. They find joy in their work. 
And that's a good thing. The Bible says work is from God. Before Adam and Eve fell into sin, there was work in the garden. Work is from God. But Joel says through this crisis, God has cut off even their work. Even the farmers can't do what they do. Even their work has stopped. And because of that, their joy in their work has dried up. It says here, the gladness. And here it's talking about when the farmers would bring all the harvest in. In ancient times, we don't think about it. We don't relate to this. But in ancient times, that was a big deal. It's like winning the lottery. You would gather all the harvest, bring it into your barn, and you would have a huge party. We see a picture of that, of that in the book of Ruth. They have this huge party where they drink and celebrate and sing and worship. And, and even that has come to an end. Your joy in your work is done. And even here, God is stripping everything down to expose. Expose what? Well, maybe these farmers made work not only a good thing, but it made it, they made it the highest thing. Okay, this was the ultimate thing. They took work, which in its proper context is a gift from God, and they turned it into their provider. Okay, don't miss that. Work is my provider. Of course work provides. That's where I get my money from. Not from God who gave me the ability to work, but I get money from work. Work provides. And because of that, work is security. Work gives me security. Work actually gives me much more than that. It gives me my purpose in life. It gives me my identity. If people ask me, what do you do? Then I tell them what I do, but I know it's more than what I do. It's who I am, right? I am this. I am a teacher. I am a dentist. I am a doctor. I am a lawyer. I am a homemaker. And that's fine, right? We understand that. But we also understand what that means. And so these people, they probably did turn their work into their provider, their security, their purpose, which should have been what? It should have been God. And so if someone sees work as the provider of all good things, then work literally becomes what to that person? It becomes God. Work is God. I know we don't say it in those terms, but that is what it is. Work is God. It is a God that gives them financial security. It gives them the things they need. It gives them a certain lifestyle. It gives them a level of honor. It gives them significance. It gives them identity. It gives them a reason to wake up in the morning. Not God, but work. Okay, this is why I wake up. This is why I live my life because of my work. Okay, it is their purpose. And yet, what happens to all of that in a time of crisis? What happens to everything that you have built from your work in a time of crisis? I'm talking about life-defining crisis, not you getting a parking ticket. I'm talking about a world-shaking, life-defining crisis. What happens to your work and everything that you got through work? It all comes crashing. Okay, that's Joel's point here. It comes to nothing. And this is why out of all the groups of people Joel called out, he told the farmers, be ashamed. He didn't say that to any other group, but he told them, be ashamed, verse 11. Okay, why shame? Okay, why did he say that? It's because look at all the energy, effort, time, devotion, commitment. Look at how you spend every waking hour to work, to get things, to be things, right? You build all this up, and in a single moment, it's nothing. It's all gone. And so he tells these people, you be ashamed. Be ashamed of how you've been living. Be utterly ashamed. And unfortunately, for many who worship the idol of work, when their work is taken away, I mean, it's more than shame, right? Shame is the least of their problems. For many, they lose their will to live. Okay, I, I lose my work, I lose my will to live. They become crushed. You know, back in 2020, I remember Forbes magazine ran this huge article 
It was titled Grappling with the Rise of Work-Related Suicide During the Pandemic. Again, if our life is just work, school, Starbucks, and hanging out with friends, we, we're not really aware of what's going on, right? We don't, we don't really know. But during the pandemic, lots of suicides were happening. The rate of suicide shot up. And a lot of it was work-related. You might even know some people. It's because during the pandemic, things were so shaken up, people either lost their jobs, they couldn't find a job. The jobs that they had, it, it fundamentally changed. You couldn't go into work and see coworkers. You couldn't do the things you used to do. And so a lot of people, when they lost their work, they lost their will to live. Suicide shot up. And so God, in a single moment, reveals all that. He rips it, he rips it all back, and he says, look at, look at what you guys are doing. And again, I emphasize this, it's all grace. It's grace. It's grace. God wants us to be better, to heal, to become better, I should say. Not us strive to be better, but become better, to be healed. So all these things are things that were stripped away. They were exposed suddenly by God himself through a crisis. So again, do you trust God? That's the big question. Do you trust God when crisis hits your life? Well, God is working. And another thing that he does, and we're going to just mention these last two, and then we're going to look at it more later. But he strips things away and exposes. Why? So that he can cause us to mourn. So this is the second thing he does. He causes us to mourn. So if you look at the first several verses in Joel 1, you see this. But in verse 5, it says, weep and wail, verse 5. In verse 8, he calls people to lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. You know what that is? We just kind of skim over this, but let me just stop for a moment. But this is somebody who just got married. They found the love of their life. They just got married, and during their honeymoon, one of them dies. I remember reading not long ago some, something like that happening to a couple. My goodness, we finally did it. We are married. I'm married to the love of my life. I will spend the rest of my life together with you. And boom, one of you die. Okay, this is what it's saying. Lament, mourn like that person who just lost their newlywed. He goes on to say, the grain offering, the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. You preach, you mourn. You ministers who serve God day and night, you're so religious, you're doing so many things for God, you mourn. And then finally, he tells the farmers and the workers, you be ashamed because your gladness has dried up. You're already mourning. You have nothing to celebrate today. So he's clearly calling people to mourn. And briefly, let me just mention this, but there is a world of difference between worldly, self-centered mourning and godly, God-centered mourning. But there is a world of difference. And what Joel is calling people to is godly mourning. Godly mourning. Well, what's the difference? Well, true mourning will always lead to true repentance because you grieve God and God alone. I've already covered this, I think, two weeks ago. Our last message in Galatians. But true mourning will be stirred up because you have sinned against God. You have offended him. Right? You have replaced God with other things. That's true mourning. But selfish or worldly mourning, that is mourning because now the things you love are gone. Right? That's the big difference. It's, oh no, my sin has been exposed and now I'm mourning because of that. Oh gosh, you know, people now know that I was doing this and I was living for this. So that's more worldly mourning. But God-centered mourning is, I don't care about that. What I care about is, what have I done to my relationship with God? See, do you see the difference? It's a big difference. And it's only the true mourner that leads 
to true repentance. True mourning leads to true repentance. So this is where God is driving everything. He wants us to come back to him. This is why he's bringing all this. But if you are mourning in this kind of more worldly, self-centered way, then we don't end in true repentance because we're more worried about the things we've lost. Man, I don't feel good right now. My life isn't what it should be. Maybe I could go back to church and maybe fix that. Man, you know what? I feel kind of ashamed right now. You know, I lost my job and I can't tell people about it and so maybe I should read my Bible again. See, that's not genuine repentance. Genuine repentance is, God, I grieved you. Right, I sinned against you. And so you know what this means? Do you know how you can get true godly mourning and God-centered mourning and repentance? It comes not by seeing your crisis as a mere accident or random chance. Not by seeing your crisis as just something that happened because, oh, I messed up a little bit. See, if you see your crisis as, oh, it happened because I messed up a little bit, right? I lost my job or this terrible thing is happening in the world because people are just kind of stupid, then what's going to happen is we're going to try to just fix that, right? Let's not be stupid anymore. Let's not make mistakes anymore. So then you go back into more worldly mourning, worldly repentance. But if you see the crisis as the hand of God, right? God brought it, like Joel said. See, this is very important. This is why it's so important to be biblically shaped. But God, whether you directly brought it or allowed it, this is from you, God. And you brought it because you are revealing things. You're causing me to mourn and return back to you. If you see it in that light, then what's going to happen? God, I grieved you. God is you, right? You're the one that I need to make right with. It's not just a mistake I need to correct. It's you, God. I need to come back to you. See, these are very, very different, brothers and sisters. And so this is why Joel made it so clear. Okay, don't you see what's happening all around you? Okay, this is God. This is the day of the Lord. So not only see what he's exposed, but mourn. Okay, mourn because of your relationship with God. Mourn with how you're living before the living God. Don't you know how much he loves you? This is his grace. So once you mourn, once you really see what God has done, that he's brought this so that he can bring us back to him, then we will return. We will return. And let me just read these verses and then we're going to close. But Joel said in chapter 2, verse 12, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he will relent over disaster. So clearly, All of this is driving towards that. You need to come back to God. Amen? Come back to God. And I love what he says here. Don't just rip your clothes. I heard that. I heard this one pastor describing how he literally saw that happen. But he was at some funeral, and this was in modern day, and there was a guy wearing a nice suit. And because his mother or somebody had passed away, he was so grieved. He literally just started ripping his suit. You know? Just mourning. It's like, oh, all the regrets and all the things. And I'm not making fun of that. I mean, he must have been torn up inside. But people literally do that. They just rip their clothes, right? Oh, my gosh. Joel says, God doesn't care about that. Rip your heart. Tear your heart in half. Don't you see what's going on? God's saying, please, I'm bringing this into your life to reveal things, expose things, to cause you to mourn, not because you lost your job, not because you aren't having a good time anymore, but because of what's happening between us and me and you. And so he's saying, rip your heart and return to me, and I will receive you, and I will restore. Okay, I will remove the disaster. Amen? 
So that's the clear call to repentance, and next week we're going to look at that. That's what Joel goes into. So let's just come before the Lord right now. But I believe God, he is making such a clear call. This stuff is serious. I believe God wants us to be so clear on what he's doing and how he works in a time of crisis. And maybe, maybe he's put this upon my heart to preach through Joel because he's preparing us. I don't know. But maybe God's preparing us. And so how will you respond when crisis comes? How are you going to respond? And also, can you trust God? Can you trust him? So let's just come before the Lord right now and let's just humble ourselves and say, God, I I do want to trust you. If that's the prayer in your heart, then pray it. If it's not, then ask God, God, help me to trust you. Help me. Because God does love his people with an undying love. And ultimately, the message of Joel was one of great hope, of great promises. Again, some of us might be sitting here thinking, I don't care about that because you're telling me that God brings crisis into our lives and I can't accept that. But again, be careful. You're assuming that you know all the reasons why God might do that and you don't accept those reasons. Do you really know all the reasons why God would do that? There are no good reasons. You're absolutely clear on that. That God would not have one good reason, not even one, to bring crisis into our lives. The Bible says he does. And even if we don't know it, he does. And we can trust him. So let's just come before him right now. Thank you, Father. We worship you.